Good morning, everybody. I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Um, first of all, I do want to thank uh, Jim, everybody who came out yesterday for the work day. Um, you could see the fruits of uh, the labor as you walk around the building today. You could see that we changed the uh, conference room uh, and the lounge, and we switched those up so there's now uh, sofas and, and uh, a comfortable area of seating um, closer to the cafeteria, closer to the cafeteria. Yes. Yeah, you can for now. Uh, uh, apparently, the, the, the Episcopal Diocese has uh, graciously uh, offered uh, a grant to do some upgrades on the building. Uh, you guys will hear more about that over the next couple of months. Um, and they're going to be uh, carpeting quite a bit of that and other areas. And uh, there may be some other rules instituted once the carpet gets laid down. But for now, uh, you know, you can eat donuts, nachos, ribs wings, whatever you want to bring with you to church, you know, you got like a crock pot that you're like, you know, going to church, sure, for now, but you just wait until that carpet gets installed. Um, so to today's passage, it's a, it's a story of seats. It's a story of, of, of kind of like two seats. And, and we might be so bold as to say that, that one of the ways is a good seat, and one of the ways is a not as good seat. But then again, that might get us in trouble, and you'll see it as, as we go through the passage. Um, so we're continuing this morning in our series, Holy and Faithful Mercies, The Life of King David. This is now week nine of our trek through the life of David. Um, and it's actually, uh, I, I want to say it's, it's been... Um, fruitful for me. It's been, um, I've been grateful for the rhythm that we've taken. I know um, some would have preferred that we did the entire book of First and Second Samuel, um, and uh, I'm not knocking it. I, I, you know, I, I love a good long sermon series, but we wanted to try to, we wanted to try to, um, you know, kind of consolidate the story a little bit, um, and actually. Um, to be honest with you, as I, as I mapped this sermon series out, probably last winter, um, I, I, I picked a few of the stories that I had hoped would um, make sense to focus on, and then of course, obviously, we're skipping, like we're going to skip over the next, the next week, we're going to skip three chapters, um, and we're not going to necessarily preach on those three chapters, um, but I've really been touched, actually, just this morning, uh, Brian said something to me about how this week's text connects to next week's text, that it just really, I became very grateful um, for uh, the rhythm that we've, that we've had, the stories, the episodes of the Davidic narrative that we've been focusing on, um, and I'm grateful for that. So if you call, recall, the last two weeks we've seen David rise to the throne of Israel, over all of Israel. It was a difficult journey, to be sure, full of fascinating characters and having all sorts of misadventures. And it was this grand epic that, that saw this, this humble shepherd boy um, become king. If you've been reading along, you might agree that David finally becoming king and establishing his reign in ancient Jerusalem 
felt like kind of the arrival of the story. David, David, a man after God's own heart, is finally on the throne. King Saul isn't trying to kill him anymore because King Saul's dead. The Philistines, they seem to be at bay. And the Ark of the Covenant is at his side in the new capital. Perhaps this, this business with Uzzah that we talked about last week, a chapter earlier, um, gave him just the sort of jolt of humility that he needed. Man, I loved, by the way, I, again, how God works things and we don't. I mean, the, the, the worship song choices for this morning were absolutely perfect coming out of what we talked about last week. We talked about God's holiness and how um, when Uzzah reached his hand out to study the ark, um, it, it was God's holiness that, that struck him dead because holiness demanded this. And that's a really difficult thing for us to wrestle with. But we also talked about how God's holiness welcomes us into his presence. It was holy for the cross and the empty tomb to happen that holiness demanded it. So I loved singing those words um, holiness is what I long for. I could hear David telling himself, well, settle down there, David. You've been through a lot. Um, just make sure that you're paying attention to God because he's the one who's really in charge here. You know, David, he said to himself, you only reign because God reigns. And so we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see, now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind for the Lord is with you. I mean, this must have been a pleasant exchange, at least for the moment. I mean, David is, is kind of settled, you know? He, he, he's, he's seated. He's sitting down. Um, the adventure is, it would seem, over. Now, now is the time for, for settling down and bringing peace, kind of bringing peace to the land. And he's thinking, okay, no more Saul. Philistines seem to be okay. We're not at war right now. The Ark of the Covenant is here. Wow, it's been a really crazy couple of years, but right now, I'm at peace. Wait a minute, God, I got an idea. Wait a minute, God, no, no, I got an idea. Let's, 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 let's ramp this up a little bit. Um, I, I got a great idea. Here I am on the throne, and it's a nice house, um, while the Ark of the Covenant is just living in some old tent. I think it would be a great idea to build the ark a grand house a temple and he goes to the prophet pastor nathan and 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 wouldn't you know it david and nathan are like so simpatico they're so in sync that, that david doesn't even need to explain in details uh the details of his plan you know david nathan i've got this great idea and nathan just says say no more you know i know what you're thinking and you know what I think it's a great idea. God thinks it's great. Go get him, slugger. David must have felt like a million bucks. Have you ever had like that sort of relationship with another person that they know what, what you're thinking so well um, that, that, that you don't even need to like say everything? 
Um, it's like when I'm sitting at home, and, and I'm watching TV with, with, with my wife, Amy, and we might see like a, a commercial or something that, you know, kind of puts us in the mood, and I'll casually mention, babe, it's been a while since we had KFC for dinner. And she simply responds, go, do all that you have in mind, the Lord is with you. You see, it must have felt good for David because he must have felt like he's finally on the right track. The man spent years running from Saul, hiding out in mountains with his merry men. David was indeed a man after God's own heart, but it might have been unsettling for him to spend so many years living on the edge. Okay, thinks David, we're, we're, we're on to something here. And, and then for the moment, Nathan, Nathan does too. He answers David's question before he even asks it. Maybe he just trusted how close David was to God. Maybe Nathan thought that he was pretty darn close to God himself. Regardless, this exchange is brief, and they both decide to hit the hay, excited about their developing plans. Nathan rests his head on his pillow that night under the belief that all is well. And in truth, all is well. But picking up in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I moved about among the people of Israel, did I ever speak a, a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, oh, why have you guys not built me a house? Funny how this never came up before. Some of the commentaries, they, they want us to see this as kind of a permit withdrawal, like God is just utterly opposed to the idea of a temple. I'm not exactly sure that that's the way that we're supposed to see this, but, but I could be wrong. Um, more importantly, I believe, is this principle that God desired to be with his people. He desired to dwell with them. That was the basic concept of the tabernacle, the, the tent structure that Israel moved with them throughout their years in the wilderness, with the Ark of the Covenant acting as kind of the key feature. Almost a third of the book of Exodus, for those of you who remember our time going through Torah fondly, about a third of the book of Exodus is devoted to the details of this tabernacle. Um, Thomas Friedham is a, is a commentator. He puts it like this. He says, to have such a portable sanctuary is also more accurately to reflect the God who dwells there. This is the way not only for the people, but it also uh, it's the way chosen by the God of this people. This is a God who is on the move, who cannot be localized, who cannot be pinned down to one time and place. It's less comfort, perhaps, not to have a visible God whom one can see with one's own eyes leading through the wilderness. It would be much easier to have a sanctuary that is tied down and a God who is fixed. Israel's God, however, is a God who dwells in a traveling tent, as do the people. 
God dwells not at the edges of Israel's life, but at the center of things. This God is committed to the journey. Now, before we move on, hold this thought in tension with what we talked about last week. See, on one hand, like I mentioned before, we have a God who desires to dwell in the midst of his people. On the other hand, we have this same God who is by very nature holy. That is, he's set apart in character from his creation. And that is a paradox that is worth meditating on. This God who is holy, remember we talked about him being not only holy, not only, you know, holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. This is the same God who wants to enter into our lives, enter into the lives of his followers. So often we have this this image of God kind of being distant and removed, ready to judge us because, you know, he's seen the naughty things that we've done when, when no one's looking. And the paradox of the holy slash dwelling God is that he desires to come alongside you and work through it together. Better yet, he desires that you stop attempting to define the path of holiness yourself and trust in him in a path of obedience. We see this in the Old Testament as Israel Israel wanders in uh, in the wilderness. And we see this in the New Testament with the incarnation. The word incarnation, for those of you taking notes, is a fancy theological term that we use uh, to refer to God becoming man in Jesus. Uh, The first chapter of John, the book of John, the gospel of John, the author says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 14 in John. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Now, now the word translated lived among us, amongst or, or dwelt maybe sometimes in your, um, uh, in your translations, in your, pa- in your versions. Um, it comes from the Greek word, which literally means to tabernacle or to dwell in a tent. So when we celebrate Christmas and we talk about the, the birth of Jesus, we're talking about God taking up residence among his people. And Jesus wasn't interested in the gospel kind of being tied down. He designed his discipleship model so that after the death and the resurrection, the gospel would spread like wildfire to the ends of the earth and then just keep on spreading throughout the generations and throughout different cultures. And of course it goes further than that. He wasn't interested in giving marching orders and then getting out of the way. The last line of Matthew's gospel says, Go, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Remember, though, I'll be with you. I'll dwell with you. I'll tabernacle with you 
to the end of the age. This is not a God who wants to live exclusively in temples and in church buildings. He desires to be with you wherever you go, when you go to work, when you go to school. In light of this, we expect to run into God in the streets. We expect to run into Him in the darkest areas of this world, in prisons and areas of extreme poverty and in war zones. He's a part of the good times. And He's a part of the bad. We love to make Sunday morning our, our, our God time of course, I, I would agree that we need to gather. It's good for us to gather on Sunday mornings for worship, but the truth is that he's not just interested in being a part of your life on Sunday mornings. He's interested in being a part of your life on Saturday night and Monday morning and Tuesday afternoon. This Tuesday, We'll be celebrating the 500th anniversary of what many would consider to be the start of the Protestant Reformation. The day that an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg. Um, I forgot to bring it with me, but uh, I've been reading uh, a book by um, a fellow pastor, scholar named Stephen Nichols, and he wrote a book called The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World. And uh, it's an exceptional book, actually. I have it in my office if anybody's interested in, in learning a little bit. It's a tiny book. It's a, uh, if anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about the Reformation this week. Luther chose October 31st for a reason. It was All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day. That would be a day where pilgrims would file past relics in the church, kind of appealing to the excess merits of the saints in hopes of pleasing the demands of a righteous God. Luther had wished to start a, a debate over this. He wanted to, to start a debate over um, what was happening in the Catholic Church at the time over the selling of indulgences. This was a practice that the church had been involved in since the Crusades. Essentially, just about any sin could be waved away for the right price. And not only that, you could get your dead relatives out of purgatory and into heaven at a low, low price. The Catholic preacher, John Tetzel, says, Have you ever, can you hear your dead relatives screaming out in pain in purgatory while you fiddle away with your money? When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Martin Luther, of course, furious at this, at this buying and selling of salvation, it turns out that the reason why indulgences had been so frequent recently was to pay for the extravagant taste of the Pope. See, Michelangelo didn't come cheap. And the Sistine Chapel needed to be painted, and the Vatican treasury was broke. And thesis number 50 says, Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, he would rather that St. Peter's Church should go to ashes rather than should be built up on the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. Luther said, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel and grace of our God. The gospel isn't confined to temples and buildings. It's not localized in some high and mighty group of men, and it's certainly not something to be bought and sold. The gospel is free to all those who profess faith in Christ. And that is the message that deserves to be spread radically throughout the world. Back to Nathan. 
asleep in his dream. Picking up in verse 8. Now therefore thus you should say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest, rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build me a house, David? No. How about this? How about I build you a house? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Wink, wink. When he commits iniquity, interesting language, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, which blows afflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made, shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, And in all this vision, Nathan spoke this to David. He wakes up and he takes it immediately to David. So there's a lot here that's going on. And we're we're really only glancing at it. But suffice it to say, this passage is of monumental importance to anyone who calls Jesus Lord. There's a play on words, see here, regarding the word house. Uh, The word, you know, could mean structure. Like, like a house that you live in, like, like, like the building that David wanted to build for God. You see that cute little adorable house on the cover of your bulletin. Um, but it could also mean dynasty. It could mean like legacy. David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be great. And God says, you know what? I got a better idea. How about I build you a house, David? How about I start something in you that's going to be eternal? David, through you, I will establish a forever kingdom. Remember, one of the most important principles uh, we as Christians can come to grips with is the truth that what we do for God is nowhere near as important as what God is doing through us. See, we have these big and mighty plans, things that we're going to do for God, things that we're um, uh, going to kind of do for, for His kingdom, things that we're going to do to build His, his kingdom. We're going to do things to um, better the world. We may even go as full, so far as to say things like, um, you know, I'm just into, I want to save the world. That's why we're, we're careful about, about not saying things like, we're building God's kingdom. You see, we don't build God's kingdom. The kingdom is already built. 
Now, what we can do is build for God's kingdom, but that's only because he's working through us. Through David, God is able to do abundantly more than anything David can conceive of doing himself. David is a in, in, David in mind um, has in mind this kind of settled house where God could live comfortably. Um, God had in mind a dynasty, a dynasty that included the Davidic line all the way through Jesus, through the church, and to the rest of the world. Still. David's response is touching. Like I said, it's, it's kind of difficult for us to think about these two seats, the one seat that we talked about before when David was kind of settled on the throne and the next seat that we're going to get to in a moment. But this is a different kind of seat. David's response is touching, and thankfully this is a part of the Bible that we're not left wondering about what David thought not one of settling down and getting comfortable, but one of accepting the work of this God who is on the move. At what point do we need to sit down and say, God, I accept the work that you're doing. It's not about what what I'm doing. It's not about these exciting plans that I have. My responsibility is to sit down. And we'll let um, David's prayer be our closing prayer as well. Um, But I want you to listen to these words as we're going through them, as the worship team comes back up. As we pray these, um, I want you to close your Bibles if you have them, and I want you to listen to the words. We've been following um, Eugene Peterson's book, uh, Leap Over a Wall, and I want you to listen to how Peterson translates this prayer. It's beautiful. Who am I, my master God? And what is my family? that you have brought me to this place in life. But that's nothing compared to what's coming. For you've also spoken of my family far into the future, giving me a glimpse into tomorrow, my Master God. What can I possibly say in the face of all this? You know me, Master God, just as I am. You've done all of this not because of who I am, but because of who you are out of your very heart. But you've let me in on it. This is what makes you so great, Master God. There is none like you. No God like you. Nothing to compare with what we've heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, a nation unique in the earth, whom God set out to redeem for himself and became most famous for it? Performing great and fearsome acts, throwing our nation out nations and their gods left and right as you saved your people from Egypt. You established for yourself a people, your very own Israel, your people permanently. And you, God, became their God. So now, great God, this word that you have spoken to me and my family, guarantee it permanently. Do exactly what you've promised. Then your reputation will flourish always as the people exclaim, the God of angel armies is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will remain sure and solid in your watchful presence. For you, God of the angel armies, 
Israel's God told me plainly, I will build you a house. That's how I was able to find the courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, Master God, being the God you are, speaking sure words as you do, and having just said this wonderful thing to me, please, just, just one more thing. Bless my family. Keep your eye on them always. You've already as much as said that you would, Master God. Oh, may your blessing be on my family permanently. Amen.